Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. We have an exciting episode ahead. We are joined by Jessica Bell Vanderwall, co-founder and CEO of Frame Fertility, as well as with one of her seed investors, Margaret Malone from Flare Capital. They will each share their perspectives on the fundraising process and the relationship between entrepreneur and investor after the round closes. Jessica Bell Vanderwall has 20 years of experience as a cross-functional executive, team leader, and operator, and has sold digital health products to patients, payers, and employers at companies such as Genentech, Nike, and Castlight Health. She serves as an advisor and board member for various early-stage digital health and private companies and nonprofits. She loves supporting women as a mentor, especially through her role as a co-chair of 5050 Women on Boards. Jessica holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a bachelor's in public health from UNC Chapel Hill. In 2020, Jessica founded her own digital health venture, Frame Fertility, which helps individuals and couples plan ahead for expanding their family and know their risk factors early to avoid a downstream and often costly fertility crisis. She is also the proud mom of two-year-old Parker, who inspired her work at Frame, which she started with her partner, Corey, following their own tough fertility experience. Margaret Malone is a principal at Flair Capital. She was a member of the deal team for Flair's investment into Beamy Health, Kayaba Care, Eden Health, Electra Health, and Oshi Health. In addition, she led the firm's Flair Scholar Ventures investments into Darby, Docent, Frame Fertility, and Visana Health. Before joining Flair Capital, Margaret partnered with entrepreneurs and investors to build executive teams and create the foundational human capital strategy for early stage healthcare companies while at Oxian Partners. Margaret also brings experience in healthcare-focused venture capital through her prior roles at Seven Wire Ventures and B Capital Group. She began her career as a clinical operations consultant with Huron Consulting Group's healthcare practice. Margaret is also a co-founder of Dropping Claims, a content platform powered by the Health Tech Grind, a community of 300 women entrepreneurs, operators, and investors passionate about health tech. Um, well, Jessica and Margaret, thank you so much for, for being on today to share your respective stories on your individual journeys and then everything that brought you two together. Uh, we haven't had this sort of conversation with, before. We've had conversations individually with entrepreneurs and individually with investors, but it's great to, to have both of you in the room to reflect on that, on that experience. To kick things off, would like to hear from Jessica first in terms of the story of, of Frame Fertility, what the mission is and, and what you're trying to do, trying, how you're trying to change the space. Yeah, thanks for asking. So, you know, at, at Frame, you know, our vision is we want to live in a world where infertility doesn't exist. Uh, it, and to achieve that, we want to help people map out the plan for their potential future family and know their risks and options early so that ideally they can avoid that downstream crisis and diagnosis of infertility, which often doesn't mean anything. It's just the absence of something happening, but really the root cause is what is driving that challenge. And we want to find those root causes as early as possible. So, you know, we want to help anyone and everyone that may want kids someday to achieve their family planning goals. 
And our offering is based on decades of research and clinical guidelines that speak to what you can do early. And sadly, what we, we learned is just that those guidelines aren't actually used very often and clinical practice lags research by about 17 years. So we basically translated all that information in partnership with experts into a digital health product that is a blend of, of tech and services. And we, we intake someone's information. We surface risk factors using a clinical algorithm that we built. And then we coach and counsel people on their next steps. And it's really all about making things easy and understandable, but we also layer in that personal touch with the coach because this is a, a sensitive topic. Um, but again, at the end of the day, we really want to help people understand their options, understand potential challenges as early as possible so that we can avoid that, that downstream crisis. Definitely. And I imagine having a tool like this can help facilitate these sort of conversations between a provider and a patient, because like you said, it's a very sensitive topic. And so um, just knowing that there, there is a tool out there, I think can make these conversations a lot easier and help put the patients at, at ease. Yeah, you're spot on. And, and it's interesting because we actually started our work directly working with providers. So to your comment, we worked with providers to offer this to their patients. And we wanted to monitor how that drove to a better patient provider relationship up close. And that was one of the core goals is how does this lead to better patient confidence and engagement in their health, but also a better relationship with their provider? Because you're, you're exactly right. Providers want to do the right thing. It's just mm -hmm. hard to squeeze in all of these topics into a you know, 10 to 20 minute visit that they maybe have with someone every few years. So exactly. That's, that's definitely been a key piece of how we've built this product. And, and obviously our, our clinical advisory board and the clinicians we've been working with from day one have been big proponents of that too. Amazing. How did you decide to take that first step to start a company and help and help others in their fertility journey? Yeah. So, you know, both myself and my, my partner and co-founder were, we're pretty analytical people. And so, you know, first and foremost, we, we actually went to PubMed, which may seem a little bit atypical, but we, we first wanted to understand, was there anything that could have been done differently? Are, is there research on this topic? Again, I think when we stepped away from our journey, both of us knew that, you know, it, it could have gone better, but we weren't sure why or how, or, you know, I think I left the, the whole situation very honestly feeling like I did something wrong. And so we went to PubMed, we did a lot of research. Uh, I think we reached out to almost every first author that we came across on this topic. I, I think in total, we talked to uh, around 200 uh, clinicians and researchers. And then I Honestly, we also spent a lot of time with, with other people. We, we asked a lot of people that we knew, have they been through this? What was their experience? And so we were definitely in data gathering mode. And that's what we did for almost the first few months of this whole journey. Uh, and, and I'll say I was also about eight months pregnant when we started down oh, this wow. path too. So, um, so I think data gathering was, was about all I was capable of at that time. But again, hearing the stories, hearing the research, I mean, it was it was very clear to me that there was, there was something there. Um, and then I'll also say, you know, as I started to take a step back and just think about, you know, again, what I had gone through personally, how, how fertility treatment took a toll on my mental health, how, you know, in many ways, I actually stepped out of the workforce to, to deal with the fertility crisis and the money we spent on it. You know, I find that, you know, we are lucky again, individuals that, 
were able to get through this. We had the money, but you know, most people cannot go through this type of crisis and be able to do all of those things, especially all at one time. And, and it definitely, you know, during COVID made me really think about this a lot more because as I see women stepping out of the workforce even more, you know, it, it is very important that we support people early so that we're helping women stay engaged in the workplace and they don't have to deal with a crisis like this. It just feels in many ways, you know, unfair to, to, to have to put this burden on individuals to deal with later. So reactive solutions, I just could tell were not going to cut it. Uh, and what I was seeing in the research is there were things that you could do proactively and preventively to, to avoid the crisis. Now, I wanted to transition and talk a little bit more about the fundraising process. Um, so you've done all this research, you've developed the, the initial algorithm and digital health tool. Um, you know, how did you come to the decision that, okay, we need to raise money, we need money to, mm -hmm. to keep moving forward. What, what was that decision process like? So I think there were a few pieces that we uh, weighed as we were thinking about our next steps. So, you know, one is, you know, very honestly, we knew this was not going to be easy. We were trying to really uh, change the tides on a topic where, you know, there are solutions today, but they're all really focused on when you're actively trying and or are struggling. And so we knew that we were building something very different. And in many ways, we were building something that mirrored Themes of preventive care, which even more so we know is, is not easy and takes time, it takes energy, it takes data. And so we knew we were in this for the long haul, but we also knew that it wasn't something that, you know, overnight was going to be uh, something that we could just turn on and instantly be bringing in revenue. We actually wanted to work with providers and work with other players in the space to release this to the masses. We didn't want to go direct to consumer. It was something that we, we talked a lot about. And it was actually a reason that we made very deliberately to want to work with the kind of providers, employers, payers of the world to, to bring this to people as the standard of care. And so we talked to a lot of our mentors and a lot of advisors, and we felt like this was a business that um, was very much, you know, needing venture backing because we believed that the vision and the goal that we had in mind was substantial, um, but we also knew that it was going to take time. So we needed to bring people to the table. And so, you know, we're lucky we had mentors again in this space. We, myself and my co-founder have both worked in digital health. And so we also were able to consult people pretty quickly and easily to understand, you know, is there something here? Is this a big business? Is this something that uh, VCs would, would back? And we got tremendous feedback. And we also, again, I think we're starting to really realize the vision was beyond the MVP. Uh, and so I think with all of that feedback, we started to then think about what then would the, the next phase of this look like? You know, how do we think about what the size of the round would look like and who we want to bring to the table? How long had it been since you first started this journey? Yeah, so we um, we started the journey uh, in mid 2020. Um, that was when kind of conceptually the pieces were starting to come together, and that's when we started to really work on the product in the trenches with the team of of clinicians and start to build the first generation of the product. 
And then most of 2021 was really spent uh, piloting this uh, and iterating on it, especially again in collaboration with providers. And that's when we started to put it into clinical practice and work with providers to offer this to their patients, observe how this changed clinical outcomes, how it drove to better patient engagement and satisfaction. And then we started the, the fundraising process in late 2021. Um, and so we were very mindful of this being a kind of patient-led product from the beginning. And we wanted to make sure we got as many of the pieces figured out uh, mm-hmm. so that, again, we walked into the, to the fundraise as strong as possible with, with the data behind us around how it was working. Right. And I'm sure it makes the the story and the thesis a lot more compelling when you have that direct patient patient data. So how were you able to put yourself in, in front of the investors and in front of the right investors? So again, this is where I was very lucky because of our networks. We didn't end up really sending any cold emails. We ended up finding some early angels. Um, I'll say that, you know, my previous founder from Castlight Health and Corey's previous founder from SIAPS have both immediately said they were on board. And so we brought some great angel investors to the table and people that were confident in us. And they said, we'll help you. And so we we did the kind of standard build the, the investor list, the ideal list that we want to go after from an institutional perspective. They helped us iterate on that. They helped us uh, find introductions and ways to meet with different people. But, you know, again, we were, we were lucky in that we had a network and asking for help is something that I definitely learned is, is critical during this journey. And uh, I don't know where we would be without those, those great mentors and people from our past. Amazing that you had such great champions very early on. When you were in front of these, these investors and talking to these folks, what were some of the most common questions that you receive? You know, I think at this stage, and, and I'd love to hear from Margaret on this too, what it's really all about is the vision and the team. So what is the vision you have for this business? You know, obviously, again, we, we had learned some things about the initial version of the product. We kind of knew directionally where we wanted to go in the near term, but what's, what's the big vision? What's the kind of 10 plus year vision? Why, again, would, would an investor want to support something and in, in hoping that it becomes, you know, a billion, billion dollar business plus. So what's the vision? And then who are the team members? Why are they the right people to be actually starting this business? And so those were the core themes that we wanted to echo in our presentation and in our pitch. But I think in terms of the, the other questions that you get, obviously, is, you know, around what's the business model? And, and so those are some of the things that we really dug into with the early investors. And, you know, candidly, at the seed stage, you're still figuring a lot of that out. And so you have hypotheses, but that's actually what you want to bring investors to the table around to help you iterate on. But, you know, we had at least a, a outlined set of next steps related to business model and go to market. But those are the types of things, again, that you're going to continue to evolve between the seed and, and series A. What are some, and you alluded to a few of these, but uh, what are some other key takeaways that you have from this process that you were looking to apply to your future rounds? Yeah, I mean, I think pretty much every founder I talk to when when we reflect on fundraising, there's always things you know you could have done better and there's things you know you would like to change. But I think 
as I reflect, and we did a, a full kind of retrospective in December of, of 2021 after the process closed, I think what went really well is, you know, what I mentioned earlier, having those early believers, those, those early angels that you know you want to work with, that you know are going to be champions of you regardless, because there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. That was super important to getting momentum going into the fundraise. Um, having a process. So, you know, net, net, we were done with the process in about a month and a half, which um, it's funny because when I think about it, uh, I often think it went on for a really long time. But but in the end, I actually think we, we ran it pretty efficiently. And um, again, to my comment, asking for help, asking for introductions. What's so interesting is when I look at the list of investors that we had initially, most of the people that we're now working with, other than um, ironically, Flair, are not the people that are now our investors. And I think it's because conversations evolve and you meet new people and, and other people introduce you to other people. And so I think just keeping an open mind and, and really getting a sense of who you get along really well with, who's asking the questions that are really getting you thinking, um, it's important, at least from our experience, not to be married to that first list, but to really kind of let the process play through and, and find the people that are going to be great partners around the table. Um, I think, you know, what could have gone better? I think, you know, what, what any founder I talk to is the way you tell the story in the beginning is not always the way you tell the story at the, the end. It evolves. Your storytelling gets better. You tweak as you go and your deck is definitely a living, breathing document. Um, the other thing I'll say is, you know, interestingly enough, I think people either seem to get it in the first conversation or two, or, or they don't. Uh, and that's totally okay. And I think to some degree, it's important to let people go if they don't get it, especially, you know, we're working on something hard. We're really trying to change a mindset. And so in the beginning, I, I know I always felt the sense of, I want to, I want to convince people that this is the right answer, but at the same time, again, finding the people that, you know, in the first conversation, I'll never forget some of our investors that we have around the table now, you know, with a 30 minute conversation said, I get it. This makes total sense. You're doing something completely different. I am on board. And those are the people that, you know, again, we're working with and I'm super excited because they continue to be our champions. And then I'll say, finally, um, just giving yourself days off. Uh, fundraising is, is an exhausting process. Like I mentioned, it, it feels like it went on for a lot longer than it did. And so, taking a breath. And that's something that, you know, even in my day-to-day -day now, just realizing you need to give yourself some time away and time off is, is super key. And some founders I talked to said, you know, stack all of your fundraising meetings on one day and then the next day have none. Um, and that may work for you. It may not, but just kind of finding a rhythm that works for you, but doesn't, you know, lead you to burnout is going to be super key. And so just checking in with yourself and having good people to be a sounding board is, is essential as well. I, I want to turn the conversation to the investor perspective and hear from Margaret. What are you looking for when you're meeting with a founder for the first time? Yeah, happy to jump, jump in here. And first of all, thank you so much for having us here today. We're it's a unique conversation and I think Jessica did an excellent setup and I'm very eager to dive in and talk more about frame. So at the earliest stages, it's all about team and the market opportunity. So I like to call it kind of, you know, founder market fit and trying to suss that out during our meetings. So understanding why, you know, this particular person is uniquely equipped and capable of building whatever company that they're pitching to me. Um, 
I think like to understand kind of their decision path, you know, how they make decisions, what path they take, um, you know, are they, uh, how does flexibility and adaptability play a role here? Because oftentimes, you know, the company may look very different in six months or in 12, 12 months and try to understand that and really what their goals and vision are. I like to work with founders that are hungry, are humble, and to Jessica's earlier point, you know, not afraid to ask for help. It's super important, especially at the earliest stages, to be able to ask for the help. Uh, I think as part of that kind of first meeting as well, or, or early meetings, I should say, I also want to understand their ability to be a lightning rod for great talent. I think Jessica hit on this as well. It's such an important aspect of building startups and you know, bringing in world-class talent to help build and grow a company is, is hugely important. And it was funny, Margaret, I just looked back at what our first email was and it was in April, 2021. And that was, you know, well before mm-hmm. we had even started the fundraise. And so I think the, the best relationships actually, in my opinion, are the ones that kind of evolved naturally too over time. I mean, Margaret and the Flair team were, you know, there to, to be thought partners with us well before we were investing. And so it is, it is a long-term relationship and you get to know people over time. And so then by the time we turned the corner in kind of September, October, and we're really into the fundraise, you know, we, we knew the team really well. And so, you know, again, I think that's why even today it's, it's always nice to be able to meet new people, new investors, and kind of just keep the conversation going. I think it's actually, you, you learn a lot by the times where you talk to people in this space when you're not investing. Uh, and so it was funny to look back to see how long ago that, that first communication was. And, and again, it was through a, a mutual colleague. Oh, wow. So that's, that's so refreshing to hear how, you know, it doesn't have to be always so transactional. Um, the relationship between an entrepreneur and an investor, it, 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 especially at an early stage, it's a, a partnership, a collaboration, almost, and to a certain extent, a little bit of friendship as well. Margaret, I wanted to uh, understand a little bit more from an investor perspective, how you go about diligence. So you have a founder comes in, gives you their pitch. Then you go back to your team and you're trying to evaluate whether or not this is something you want to pursue. What, what type of diligence are you doing afterwards? For how long? What are some, you know, do you have a framework for the type of questions that you're trying to tackle when you're doing this diligence? Can you just give us a little bit more of a sense of how this process goes? Yeah, absolutely. Just to start, it, it definitely depends on the business and, um, you know, to the earlier points, like how long we've known the entrepreneur, um, what are some of like really the key questions that we need to answer as part of the diligence. So we pull together a framework to outline, you know, what are those key questions? What does this process look like? What do we need to answer in order to get to a decision? So we'll, hand, we'll have a handful of discussions with the founders, um, with experts within our network, um, to really help answer those questions. Um, and, and also, I, I think it's probably important to mention too, you know, we also introduce the founders to potential customers as part of diligence um, to kind of for two reasons. One, to get a better sense of, you know, how they might evaluate partnering with a company and then also to start to show that value um, as a potential future partner to the company. You know, these are the type of folks that we can, we can introduce you to and, and bring to the table. That's kind of at a highest level how we think about the process. There are a couple of key areas that um, 
you know, as we're designing those uh, kind of the roadmap that we, we tend to focus on. So, as I mentioned before, team, um, you know, it's, it's really the most important element, especially at the earliest stage. So to really trying to understand um, the, the founding team, the management team, uh, you know, where do they need to hire in this next stage? Um, and, um, you know, spending one-on-one one time with the team. I think that's something that maybe not all investors do, but we really like to spend one-on-one time with the team that's in place to get to know them. Because ultimately, as we said before, it's a relationship not just with the, you know, the CEO, but um, with the broader team as well. And then kind of second category is, is market. So really want to understand uh, kind of where they're, you know, this, this company is playing in. We like to see, you know, we'll do our own kind of bottoms up analysis of the market size. Um, but to Jessica's earlier point, you know, it's important for an entrepreneur to describe both the current market that they're, you know, um, building in, but then also kind of describing how that, you know, the product and solution that they're building today may evolve into a much larger market. Um, and, you know, I think we, um, we like to invest in multi-billion dollar markets. And so it's an important mm-hmm. part of that story. Um, so we'll come up with, you know, the key questions that we need to answer if, you know, if that is something that we're, you know, we need to evaluate. The third category is product and traction. So really understanding, you know, what is the product today? What's the roadmap? I think I spent a lot of time with Corey unpacking what that product roadmap looks like um, and was super impressed with really kind of how they had approached day one and, and how they were thinking about it over time. But I think it's it's important to, be focused on what you're delivering today, yet tell a big story of what really the future of the solution could, could look like. I think here as well, you know, we'll evaluate if there's a clinical model too. So understanding kind of how the company uh, plans to deliver clinical care if they are, and what are the key clinicians that they plan to bring on board. And if there is traction, so at the earliest stages, there may still be a lot of learnings and uh, may not have you know, full paying customers yet, but we like to understand um, you know, what do they see the value, what, what value drivers will they bring to those potential customers? Uh, what need are they solving? You know, what does the pipeline look like? All just important kind of questions as you evaluate kind of the product, uh, product and, and traction piece. And I think maybe along those lines, it's really thinking about what is the sustainable advantage here and, and how will they differentiate in the market too? Kind of other big categories, business models. So at the earliest stages, you know, it's a lot of unknowns on, on the business model, but it's really important to, I think, walk through what are those key levers? What do we hope to test and learn during this next stage? Um, and I think Jessica said it really well earlier. Um, it's really, you know, kind of evaluating what is, uh, how does the founder think about that? Um, and how do they think about kind of different levers as it, as it relates to the business model over time? Because oftentimes that that will change um, and uh, they'll learn from their early customers about what resonates and what might not resonate. Um, And then the last category is really focused around kind of financing the milestones for this raise. I often tell Mm -hmm. founders to work backwards from the next fundraise and ask yourself, you know, what should the company look like in order to get to that next phase of growth and, and then kind of work backwards and identify those key milestones. So really important to be laser focused in the earliest days and set those goals, you know, take small steps um, to achieve the larger goals and think about kind of what capital is necessary to get there. Got it. Well, that's a great framework that you have shared with us, Margaret. So thank you for that. 
So going from April 2021 to fall 2021, did all of this diligence and presumably frame hit a lot of these buckets, checked off a lot of these buckets. So how did you decide to pursue the investment in frame and specifically you invested in the safe or a simple agreement for future equity. Um, so could you, could you explain how a safe works and situations in which you would invest via a safe versus a convertible note, et cetera? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so maybe starting with your, your first question and just kind of how we got there from diligence to financing. I mean, I, I think it really came down to two things. And I think kind of the listeners probably heard it very loud and clear today, just through interactions with Jessica, super compelling founders. And I think that both had relevant experience in the personal story. So I think we were quite moved by, by kind of their hunger and their desire to build and solve this pain point. And then I think also kind of the you know, their ability to build a product and to kind of think about the market in a different way. A lot of businesses that were on the market at the time, you know, very much focused on helping people react to fertility goals rather than like proactively managing them. And I think that was something that uh, Corey and Jessica kind of were approaching the problem in a different light. And when we're applying technology and kind of personalized recommendations and, and the coaching model as well to help build that 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 story, um, and it was super compelling. Uh, so as when they were raising in the fall, you know, it was a dialogue between us and Jessica. I'm sure I'm curious to hear Jessica's perspective as well. But um, you know, I think there's a lot of pros and cons to safes, and I think the benefit one of the one of the key benefits is time. Um, you know, from a founder's perspective. Um, just being able to get capital in and quickly um, rather than, you know, sometimes um, price rounds can take many months. And so at the earliest stages, I think it's important to, you know, have early traction, have kind of the right story and go out to market and, um, you know, bring together an, a group of um, investors, angels, um, early partners to help you achieve kind of the next milestone. So it saves in a lot of ways kind of accelerate that process so that you can then you know go out, accomplish your goals, and then come back to market with a bigger story. And I think given where frame was at the time, I think it made a lot of sense to approach it that way. And I think they've been incredibly thoughtful about what are the milestones, what do we need to accomplish in this next round um, in order to, to um, prove out you know, what's working. So I'll pause there. I would love to hear Jessica's feedback as well. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, thanks, Margaret. I, I think you're spot on. I it's this is where again, um, founders are also just your your greatest ally. I spent a lot of time in parallel to the fundraise and definitely, you know, ramping up to it, asking, well, what went well for you? How did you do this effectively and efficiently? And I think, you know, the safe instrument is a is somewhat of a, a new reality. And I think it was, you know, kind of standardized by Y Combinator, but it, mm -hmm. it makes everything simple, easy, definitely lower cost on the legal side. And, you know, there are pros and cons to going different routes, but, you know, the more I learned about safes, the more I learned that this was going to help 
you know, make the process again as effective and as efficient as possible. And so um, that's why we went the the safe route. It's a document that you can change yourself. You don't have to involve a lawyer. Um, and so again, definitely uh, more cost effective for sure. So I, I imagine for for safes, there aren't that many pieces of the agreement that require negotiation. I think there, you know, there's like a valuation cap or a discount rate approach for for a safe. Yeah. I mean, can you can you walk through what that negotiation process was like. Yeah. And so there's a few different flavors of safes. So to your comment, um, you know, you can do a safe with, with no valuation cap and you can use what's called a most favored nation clause that basically just says, you know, when you sign and there's not a valuation, uh, but there will be terms set at some point, you'll get the best terms that are out there. Um, but you can also set a cap uh, either pre-money or post-money. So obviously, you know, pre-money and post-money are going to factor in how much you raise in a different way. And then to your point, that the kind of last piece that you can layer in is is a discount. Um, and so I'll just say, we kept it as simple as possible in that we went with a post-money safe so that we could kind of back in and do the math really easily. Um, and we did not do a discount. Um, we did do a, an MFN, a Most Favored Nation Clause for our earliest investors, which again, those were the ones that said yes, kind of right out of the gate before we even started the process. But you know, I think those are really the, the main things you can tweak, which make it all really easy. Mm-hmm. So again, it's kind of plug and play. You know, I entered the numbers there uh, myself. You know, in terms of valuation, this is definitely something where I think <laughs> the market has gone in waves. It's a blend of kind of science and, and art, I would say. I mean, there's there's definitely some numbers and ways that we backed into our valuation, but it's also, you know, what the, the market is allowing today for companies, you know, at your size, at your stage, et cetera. And so, um, again, it's kind of a blend of, of science and art. And I'll also say, you know, we came to our valuation in collaboration with some of our earliest investors, and, but we held off on, you know, setting a valuation until a little bit later in the process to ensure that we also were able to understand market interest. And so, you know, I think by the time uh, we got around to, to signing things in collaboration with Flair, we had set a valuation. And, and so, you know, I think at that point, you know, we had the data to say that, you know, this is what other investors, including our lead investor are signing up for. So I think it's also just about, you know, establishing a baseline in collaboration with at least a lead in our instance. Margaret earlier mentioned, you want to think about where you want to be at your next round and working backward as to what those milestones are going to be or what you want to accomplish in the interim. Jessica, what are, what are uh, some milestones that you're hoping to achieve between now and, and your next round? Yeah, there's, there's kind of three big buckets, I'd say, of milestones that we're working towards right now. So I'd say the first one is around product. So I alluded to the fact that we built an early MVP and we've kind of since been uh, leveling up that MVP, making it more scalable, more seamless. And so to the end user, it actually feels like a very automated uh, process and we get terrific feedback. We have a, a super high user NPS. And so it's it's been working really well. But I would say we know that we want to significantly uh, improve the product too, to add in new functionality, new ways that the individual can work with their coach, et cetera. And so we're building a, a V2 that is going to be a 
a much enhanced look and feel, but also a lot new functionality that we have been getting user feedback on. So I'd say product is, is one of the big buckets. The other one is around customer. So we've been working with, as I mentioned, providers that we've been launching with and also doing research around our product, but we also have released our product to employers. And so we have some early pilots in the employer world that we are looking to convert at mid-year and then sign some other big customers in the employer market, as well as partners in the employer provider and payer landscape as well. So that's going to be another big piece of, of the year. And then finally, team. Um, Margaret mentioned this, you know, bringing on board key team members that are going to take us to the next stage and really into our series a that we plan to start raising for at the end of this year early next year is going to be essential you know we're a very lean team right now so bringing on board key team members that will take us to the next phase is a key piece of the equation amazing best of luck with that um, it's a lot to accomplish between between now and and the next round and so how how do you how do how do you think your relationship with Flare Capital will help kind of facilitate this this process and this growth in before your next round? Yeah, I mean that's been the the great thing is that our relationship has been very consistent. We stay connected. We talk regularly, at least monthly, uh, and we Margaret and I also text on the side as well too. I think that's a, a good way to judge your investor relationships: is who do you have on speed dial and who can you text uh, pretty quickly and easily. So, you know, we now know the Flare team pretty well. I think we've met you know every member of the Flare team in one way, shape, or another, and so. Uh, we stay uh, intertwined, you know, formally and uh, informally. And so uh, we are regularly talking to Margaret about, you know, what we need help with, where we're stuck, what introdu introductions can they make. And so, you know, that's really what, what this phase is about is digging in and digging in together. Um, and so, you know, I'll say that most of our investors are, are very engaged and that's been tremendous because it really helps you achieve those milestones and make sure that you're getting feedback from a variety of different parties along the journey. And I'll throw in one, one more final question. Just any, any parting advice that the two of you have for our listeners as they set out on their entrepreneurial journey, and especially as they reach a certain inflection point in their company where they want to engage in the fundraising process and engage with investors? Yeah, I can hop in here. I think, um, I think it's kind of come out in both of our conversations today, but you know, don't be afraid to ask. Um, ask for help, lean on your network, ask for feedback on the product. Um, it's so important and I think you'll grow, you'll build a better product, you'll grow as a leader. Um, and then as an entrepreneur, so I, I just, I think it's so important to always ask for, for help or, you know, ask for, um, ask the question. Um, uh, it's definitely worth, worth asking. So I think that's, um, I think we heard it in the fundraising discussion, um, and building the company discussion as well. Yeah, I, I would echo that, you know, asking for help in particular, again, I, I spent a lot of time with other founders as I went through the fundraising process, you know, asking if this was normal and asking if this was expected. And I will just, you know, candidly say, um, if you're going to go raise funds, you have to be prepared and ready to hear the word no. And that's really hard for people that are, you know, trying to, to do something again, really hard, but also something they care a lot about. It, it almost feels like, People are telling you your idea is not good or your, 
your, uh, your passion and your pursuit is not worthy, but that's not what they're saying. They're just saying it's, it's not right for, for me right now. But again, you end up finding the people uh, through the process. And so everyone is going to hear no. I, I promise you, everyone will hear no, but it will always end up leading to some yeses that are going to be the people that you bring around the table and it'll all feel worth it and, and make sense at the end. And you know, being on the other side of this, that's what I take away is I'm so lucky and excited for the investors that we have now. And again, it's, it's just part of the process uh, and you learn from it, you grow from it, you figure out who are the right types of partners for you. Uh, and it's okay. Everyone hears no. And I think that's something that's just to some degree hard to understand until you fully get into the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Only lessons learned in life. That's, that's, that's what I, how I approach life. And you, yeah. And when you hear no from someone, it's only lessons learned until you find the right partners. So, well, thank you. Thank you to both of you so much for, for this conversation. Um, it was just very refreshing to hear your, your stories individually, but then also how the two of you come together to have such a beautiful relationship. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Wetzler, and audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jane, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting Thea by visiting our website, thehc.org to donate.